For those who fish, this is the Drake Cast, a voice for culture and conservation within fly fishing. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. It could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. This episode of the Drake Cast is sponsored by our good friends at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. Yellow Dog, this is Jake. The other week, I called up Jake Wells. Jake directs programs within the U.S. for Yellow Dog, and he told me about a few of the trips that he went on this year. Uh, boy, where to start? (laughs) February, I went out to the Olympic Peninsula, which is obviously the winter steelhead mecca. That was like nothing else in the lower 48. Then come springtime, visit uh, our partnered lodges here in our home state of Montana, uh, the Missouri, uh, the Madison, cross the border, fish the Bow River in Calgary. Definitely a trip of a lifetime. July, went over to the Wind River in Wyoming, caught you know some of the biggest trout that you'll find anywhere in the lower 48. So it was a fun, fun, fun year. <laughs> you don't have to leave the country to go on an adventure. Fly fish the world, and the U.S. with Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. We're also sponsored by Scott Fly Rods. I called up streamer junkie Mike Schultz, the owner of Schultz Outfitters in Ypsilanti, Michigan, to see why he trusts Scott Fly Rods. When I think of a hand-built American-made fishing tool, I think of Scott Fly Rods. I'm a blue-collar kid, man. I was raised, you know, in in Metro Detroit and, um, you know, driving a Ford or a Chevy or a Chrysler vehicle was the way of life you know all the money kind of trickled down from the automotive industry so to buy a rod that was made overseas or any product was kind of taboo you really didn't even see any toyotas around here 20 years ago but you know i think one of the things that really set scott apart is they've been made in the usa from start to finish since 1974 you know it's 44 years of rod building experience there's something to be said about that swing on by schultzies your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com for more information Alrighty, welcome back to the Drake Cast. For those of you who've been with us since the beginning, you'll know that about 16 months ago, we put out a story featuring the greatest country singer of all time. Hi, this is Dolly Parton with Smokey. And while the story didn't really have anything to do with Dolly Parton, she did make a special appearance issuing a fire warning. Now, we had a beautiful fall this year in the Smoky Mountains, but this extended drought has resulted in high wildfire danger. And that warning ended up being a bit of an unfortunate premonition. The reason we're re-releasing this episode right now is because there are a few other natural disasters going on around the world that could greatly impact some of our favorite places and favorite places to fish. The days of waiting are over. Hurricane Florence is already making its presence known along the Carolina coast. This is a very dangerous storm. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to play the original episode in its entirety, and then, at the end, update it to account for what's happening right now. This massive storm moving slowly, dumping life-threatening amounts of rain. Yeah, it's like a bomb that's gone off here. And for those of you that have already listened to this episode, I just want to let you know that we updated the background music with some killer tracks. The song we're going to do right now is written by Boudlow and Felice Bryan about a beautiful spot just out of Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And on February the 15th, 1982, this song was voted by the General Assembly of Tennessee as one of their official state songs. And we look back on dear old Rocky Top. Okay, here we go. Again. In January of 2017, I found myself in eastern Tennessee 
I was there because a friend had suggested that I check out Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Maybe I could hike a few miles off the road, run into a bear, find a fish or two. But my friend had another idea in mind. Apparently, in November of 2016, a pretty large wildfire had ripped through the area. He was wondering if there had been any damage to the streams in the park and how the trout were holding up. I had a hazy recollection of those fires, but mainly in the context of Dolly Parton's theme park. Flames are now threatening the famous Dollywood Resort. A spokesperson for Dollywood said so far no structures inside the theme park have been damaged. But staff While in the area, my friend recommended I reach out to Ian and Charity Rudder, as they might be able to help me find a story. You know, I always laugh about that because what people call check nymphin now, that was just called nymphin. Ian rocks a soul patch and a ponytail. <laughs> Charity has a warm smile and an infectious positivity. Together, they run R&R Fly Fishing, a guide service in and around the national park. And the rudders were gracious enough to show me a few areas that got hit by the fire. So off we went in their SUV. But I'll take, we'll, we'll take you to a spot. It's not a three-minute walk, and you feel like you're the end of the world. A few snowflakes melted on the windshield as we headed towards Newfound Gap. Now we're coming into some fire here. You can start to see in a little bit of char. Across the valley from us, an entire ridge was burned out. You can kind of see how these ridge lines, it's really those ridge lines that got scorched. There's just one coming right to us here. That, that narrow strip, I mean, it got everything mm -hmm. right there. You can see the ground. You can see individual rocks on the ground, everything. But you just go away from that one strip, and there's you know nothing even got burned. And the further down in the valley, there's a stream right down here below us. And you can see just the lower you get, the less impact there is. We parked and walked into the valley. Around us, uh, we've got burned deadfall, and the bases of trees have char marks going up about four feet, some of them. You could tell that there had been a fire. But all in all, the fire seemed to have hardly affected this area. There's stuff. Sprout looks like wildflowers are starting to sprout. Not bloom, but like sprout. The forest looked pretty healthy. Yeah, look at all the daffodils coming up over there. There's some blooming. Look at yeah. that. After we finished our tour, the rudders suggested I meet with Matt Culp, the supervisory fisheries biologist for the National Park. At this point, I didn't really see this being much of a story because the streams and the fish seemed to be all right. But not really having anything else to do, I called up the park's fisheries department and scheduled a meeting. They invited me to their headquarters, where I met um, Matt Culp, and I'm a fishery biologist here at the park. And his co-worker. I'm Caleb Abramson. I'm a permanent fisheries technician here in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. While cramped in a tiny basement office, we can chum up next to each other just like old times. <laughs> Caleb and Matt filled me in on the fire. So it's the middle of November 2016. We had been in a severe drought. Almost no rain, rivers flowing at a quarter of their normal volume. Now, to all the Western folks who deal with drought every year, you're probably not all that impressed by this whole situation. But as all you East Coasters know, this was way out of the ordinary for Tennessee. And during this drought, a small fire started up on top of one of the mountains in the park. And it's so steep and rocky, the fire crews really couldn't attack it. And so what they did is they established a containment line downslope and were letting it backburn down to that slope. Basically, fire crews felt like they had it under control and were just going to let this one burn itself out. However, things were not under control. 
Towards the end of Thanksgiving weekend, while the fire was supposed to be winding down, a big storm blew through. We had winds 80, 90 miles an hour, and it took that fire and started to pick it up and move it um, quite large distances, you know, up to a mile at a time. And the fire spread and spread completely out of control. The fire was just at 17,900 acres. 11,000 of those acres were in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Okay, 11,000 acres, that's quite a bit of land. So that burn area within the park is about 2% of our acreage. How many miles of stream were within the affected burn areas? There was 55 miles of stream that were affected, and uh, that was within the burn area. But just like I'd seen that morning, the burn really wasn't too bad near the streams. This spring, we anticipate a really strong green up. It helps with slope stability. You know, we were concerned about sediment moving into the rivers and streams, and so we don't anticipate, within the park at least, major debris flows or slides, which is good, and it helps also the biota, the fish and insects that live in the stream. As Matt listed off the affected areas, I was thinking to myself, all of this is good news. The impact of the fire on the streams, and therefore the fish, seemed to be pretty minimal. Matt must have sensed my lack of concern because all of a sudden, he got really serious. Uh, I think the one thing I would like to say to you yeah. is that uh, any story on the fire, be really sensitive to the fact that, you know, this was a, this has been a huge impact on our partner neighbors. So please be very sensitive to the fact that people lost their lives. Uh, we're talking about resource impacts in the park, period. And that, uh, you know, when, when people put things out there like, oh, this fire really wasn't that, didn't have a big impact. If you're reading that as a person that lost your business or home, you know, that means something totally different to them. You see what I'm saying? I didn't fully see what he was saying. What was the full impact of the fire? 2,500 homes and businesses. Were damaged or destroyed? And, uh, 14 people lost their lives. Also, we, um, some of our employees here in Great Smoky Mountains National Park uh, lost everything they had. There's that human aspect that is pretty devastating. I had no idea. While the impact in the park turned out to be manageable, it was the town of Gatlinburg, Tennessee that really got hit. Sensing that I still didn't fully grasp the gravity of the situation, Matt and Caleb introduced me to a fellow National Park employee. <laughs> this is Caitlin Hillemeyer. I do computer mapping and archaeology. And I asked her about her experience during the fire. Uh, during the fire, I was actually here at the park mapping, mapping it as it was occurring and watching it just get closer and closer <laughs> uh, to the ridge by my house. And then I ran home and it was just behind my house. So I grabbed some things and... I ended up grabbing um, my grandmother's cookbook, my laptop, um, my teddy bear, <laughs> and then um, I grabbed my fly rods and stuff from beside the door and everything else I left because I thought it would still be there when I got back like my camera a hard drive with like everything I've ever done all my photos everything and I grabbed some snapples instead of those things because I was pretty sure it was still gonna be there <laughs> and by the time I was leaving the fire had crested the hill it was coming back down the valley towards my house um, I just remember looking in the rearview mirror um, hoping that it would all still be there. <laughs> While I was leaving Gatlinburg, um, the road ahead was blocked due to the fire being on both sides of the road. 
started to come up behind us as well and we had to drive through the fire to get out and found out the next day that my house was destroyed by the fire. I lost my house and everything. <laughs> After hearing Caitlin's story, I knew I had to drive into Gatlinburg to check out the destruction for myself. Though the city is only a couple miles away from the National Park headquarters, the two places are in different worlds. The park is lush and peaceful, while Gatlinburg is a bit of a sensory overload. And I'm not talking about the effects from the fire. The main drag is lined with Ripley's Believe It or Not museums, Paul Bunyan pancake houses. It's kitschy as all get out. And in the immediate area, right on Main Street, I couldn't really see any effects of the fire. I almost didn't believe the stories I had heard from everyone. But as soon as I got outside of downtown, I could see the destruction. Holy shit. To my left, there's a burnt-out gas station with a skeleton of a car out in front. On the right side of the street, the houses are perfectly intact. Much like in the National Park, the fire spared some areas but completely destroyed others. The hills surrounding the city were peppered with skeletons of burned-out buildings next to perfectly intact mansions. Only a couple blocks away, residential streets alternated between fully intact and entirely obliterated. The fire had defined clear winners and losers. That afternoon, I stopped at the local fly shop, the Smoky Mountain Angler, to hear about their experience. Well, I'm Harold Thompson, and I own the fly shop here. Here in? Gatlinburg. Gatlinburg. Tennessee. There we go, there we go. <laughs> Harold looked around the shop with a face that asked, who is this idiot? And the shop is still here, but if you go half a block up the road. Right across the road. It's just got everything right, just right across this little road here. A charred tree at the edge of the property separated the fly shop from an entire block of homes that didn't make it. Even though Harold didn't lose the shop, financially, he didn't make it out of the fire unscathed. Of course, we were closed for two weeks that we couldn't get into town, uh, which was a complete shutdown. What little fishing we've done has been good. We actually have got a trip going out at 1 o'clock today, and uh, I expect they'll catch some fish. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's changing by the day. We first thought that we would be many years getting back to normal, but it's not going to be forever. Getting more like old times as we go along. Yeah. Before I left town, I'd heard about a group that emerged from the ashes of the fire. It's called Project Smoky Mountain Rebirth, and its mission is to thank first responders for their help during the tragedy by taking them out fishing. You know, I wanted to be able to show these folks a, a part of the Smokies that they didn't get to see when they were here, the way it should be seen. Meaning with a fly rod in hand. I spoke with Chris Turner, the director of Project Smoky Mountain Rebirth, about the goals of the project and how things have been going. We had two great events. Well, the first one we had was for our National Guard Guides from the area volunteered their time and their boats to thank the first responders. We uh, floated a bunch of them down the river. Everybody caught fish. Um, now the second one, we were actually able to procure a local local park right here and that is right on the Little Pigeon River. And it holds some pretty nice rainbows and a good smallmouth population. That was for the first responders, the locally affected. We taught them how to fish in the Smoky Mountains. You know, it was about the fellowship. 
While Project Smoky Mountain Rebirth is based around thanking first responders from out of town, I got a sense that its main purpose has been healing the local community. It's a good excuse to come together after the fire tried to tear the town apart. Since this happened, everybody around here has kind of banded together and done everything within our power to try to make this place not just a home again, but everybody's home away from home just like it was. And I heard this positivity repeated throughout my time in Gatlinburg. You've got to understand something about Tennessee. The Tennessee people take care of one another. I tend to be a, a very chipper person. I think even like right after the fire, you know, every, everything happens for a reason and it really is not fun losing all your stuff, but it's kind of a fresh start. And you know, there's a silver lining to everything that happens. People were glad to come here, glad to give business back to the community. Um, I don't, you know, this past year, 2016 was our highest visitation to date. We had 11.3 million visitors in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And I don't really see that trend declining. I think people are gonna to continue to come and enjoy the area. Life in the Smokies continues. This fall, I invite you to visit Gatlinburg and Great Smoky Mountains National Park to show your support for the area. Make sure to bring your fly rod. You won't be disappointed. Alrighty, this is where the original episode ended. We gotta run a quick ad break, but when we come back, we're gonna put this story into the present tense. A few months ago, I got out on the water with Ross White, the founder and manufacturer of Deli Fresh Design. I might try to take some bow and arrow casts to those bigger fish over there. And this dude is a bit of an antiquarian. Fishing bamboo. And White applies this commitment to products that have stood the test of time to his designs. Simple, yet elegant, and fully functional. That's what you get when you buy a product from DeliFreshDesign.com. As a special promotion, listeners of the DrakeCast can get 20% off when they enter promo code capital DRAKE20 at the checkout. Again, that's DRAKE20 for 20% off products from DeliFreshDesign.com. Go check them out. Alrighty, back to the show. Yo! This is Captain Brian Horsley. And along with his wife, Sarah, the couple runs a fly fishing charter service. You know, it's 100% migratory fishing, and uh, when it's on, it's on. It's spectacular. You know, what we call puppy drum, which y'all call redfish, you know, anywhere from 25 to 50 pounds that you can catch on fly. Uh, bluefish, speckled trout, spectacular cobia run, and black tip sharks and spinner sharks. Spanish bluefish, and then as October, November, and into December run, We've got incredible false albacore fishing, probably the best on the East Coast. You know, a lot of sight fishing, a lot of action, bird action on top, a lot of breaking fish. And the reason we're talking to Brian is based on the location of that guide service. Where are you this morning? I'm in Nags Head, uh, North Carolina, the Northern Outer Banks. And just for people who don't know what that is, where is the Northern Outer Banks? It's coastal North Carolina. We've got a string of barrier islands that start from, you know, run from Virginia all the way down to Cape Lookout. And I am in the northeast section of it, Oregon Inlet, for people who fish just above Hatteras Island. Pretty recently, North Carolina experienced a storm of epic proportions. Right now, I take it you're not on the water. No, it could be two more weeks before I get back on the water. Can you just run me through what's happened in the last week in this area of the country? 
All right. Well, I'm in that. I was in Cape Lookout in, on Harker's Isle, and, and we were kind of not ground zero, but we were damn close to ground zero for Hurricane Florence. Along the Outer Banks, storm surge inundating homes and inland. The threat of devastating flash flooding just beginning. There is a high probability this will become a mandatory evacuation order. Within the next. I chose because of, I knew we were going to lose power to move back up to an exit area. The hurricane up here, Florence, was a basically a non-event. You know, it was a normal, it just blew 40, which it does that all winter. While Brian had a backup plan at his home further up the coast, there were others that, despite the mandatory evacuation orders, chose to ride out the storm. Hello? Hey, is this Joe? Yes, it is. That's the one good thing about this storm, if you can say there was anything good about it. It came real slow. You had plenty of time to prepare if you were going to stay. And even with the evacuation orders that were given, I stayed. A lot of other people stayed. This is Captain Joe Shute, the owner of Cape Lookout Fly Shop and Fish Finder Charter Service out of Atlantic Beach, North Carolina, which is situated on a barrier island about halfway up the North Carolina coast. And while Joe went against the recommendations of the state, local, and federal governments, he wasn't unprepared to ride this hurricane out. I took my fly shop. I've never been flooded there before out of all the hurricanes. And this time I got a little worried, so I rented a 24-foot U-Haul truck. actually rented two of them. And we took everything. It took us two days. We got everything packed up and taken out of the fly shop. And what I did, I drove the truck out here to my house, knowing that the hard winds were going to be coming out of the east-northeast. And I positioned one of them in front of my house, which covered the majority of it, and the other one I put down on the other side like a triangle. And so those acted as two great big wind blocks. I asked Joe how he felt as the storm approached. Well, yeah, you're anticipating it getting here and you're always anxious and hoping that nothing's going to fall on your house or that your house is going to hold together. And just to hear the winds going through the pine trees here, you know, we had a sustained winds for almost 36 hours, close to 48 hours of 60 to 80 miles an hour. Which is pretty out of the ordinary for hurricanes. Normally when the storms come through, they're moving at 15 or 20 miles an hour, and it only lasts about six or eight hours, so the worst of it's gone. This stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed, and you thought it was never going to leave. And you sit here and listen. When winds are blowing that hard, you hear that, and then you hear the gusts coming, which we had gusts over 100 miles an hour. And you can hear them just before they get to you going across the pine. Huge noise coming at you and it'll hit your house. You just got to ride it out, it's all. And I asked Joe how he's faring now that the storm itself is gone. I didn't lose any shingles. I didn't lose any siding off the house. The fly shop did not get flooded, but on the other end of the building through roof damage, two or three other shops got destroyed. So once again, I slid by by the skin of my teeth. But, you know, there are a lot of places on the beach over there that are totally destroyed. I mean, drive stacks for boats, a lot of the big charter docks and marinas over there. You know, roofs are gone off a lot of places. I mean, it was, it never did flood over on the, on the banks right there to any extent, but the wind damage was pretty bad. And how about the recovery for the rest of the state? You know, everybody for the first couple of days, just go, you can't do anything. You don't have any power. You know, you don't know where to go. You're cut off. 
people who prepared have chainsaws, have fuel, have water and food, go outside and they cut up the trees that fell. They stack them all up, clean the yards up, and wait for the power to come back on. Fortunately, I think I'm going to be getting power back today. I got utility trucks on my road right here, but there are places here in the county where they're estimating as long as 30 days. You've been around there since the 80s. That means you're You've got a few years under your belt. Are you getting tired of this whole thing? Well, you know, the way I look at it, it's bad while you're in it, but I'm real happy to live in this part of the country because things like this, the hurricanes are about the only thing we really have to put up with here. I feel pretty lucky, and I never plan on moving. I mean, it's uh, we have everything in the world here to do. We've got some of the best fishing in the world, both inshore and offshore best hunting around. I mean, here in coastal North Carolina, we have just about everything. I still feel even with the hurricanes that come through, this is probably one of the better places to live. Despite Joe's positive attitude, not everyone fared as well as he did. You also have uh, different places from inland with the major rivers coming down, the Cape Fear River, the Tar River, the Noose, the Pamlico Sound, all these places, and all the rain from upstate is now coming down here. Well, when the tide region meets the river flow coming down, it's nothing but a huge backup, and the water's got nowhere to go but out. And that's when you start seeing the bad flooding. And that's going that started, you know, the last day or so, but it's going to continue for another week to 10 days. I mean, so the inland part of the state always catches more water damage and flood damage than we do here on the coast. Not to mention the numerous casualties and fatalities inflicted by the storm. When you're talking about floodwaters that, that come into a city that are anywhere from, you know, two or three inches in somebody's house to the whole rooftop, you know, is underwater. Uh, and there's thousands and thousands of people in North Carolina right now that are having to deal with all that. And uh, I'm just very fortunate and thankful that I'm not one of them. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a bad thing to have to deal with when you lose everything. That was the one bad thing when the storm was going to come in at 140 miles an hour, and we were supposed to be the target. You, you sit there and you joke with everybody and you put everything up, and then reality sets in. You sit there and you look and you say, you know, I'm just about to lose everything, and the only thing I can do is grab my insurance papers, my important papers, stuff that's important to you for you know, some of your fly fishing gear, some of your guns, stuff like that pictures, stuff that you can throw in two or three totes and leave, knowing that when you come back, everything that you work for is going to be gone. And even though insurance will more than likely cover it, hopefully you've kept your flood and wind insurance up, you're looking at years, you know, before you get squared back away and people get squared away. And you're talking about months upon months before the insurance adjusters a lot of time will come in and get your money to where you can start to rebuild and tear everything down. Like I said, I'm real fortunate. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy the way my situation turned out. But there's an awful lot of people here that's got a long road to home. Uh, it's going to be years before they'll get back. One way that you can help these affected areas is by bringing some revenue into the local economy. Both captains Joe and Brian thought that this was a good idea and explained why it might be worth your time to fly down to North Carolina for a quick three-day weekend. That would be great, especially on the Crystal Coast there out of Moorhead. I mean, obviously, you want to check ahead and see 
how far the recovery is going, but it, it it would really help. You know, there's, they've got good fishing here in the, on the Outer Banks all year round. So, I mean, there's always anglers here. People need to still come on down and give us a call because, you know, the end of October, November, we're probably still going to have a, a great fishing season. And we'll all get over this. It's just, you know, takes time. And it's a big inconvenience for a lot of people. But like I said, you know, your thoughts and prayers go out to the people that have, have really got damaged a lot worse than I have because there's some people that have lost everything. Lots of thank yous this week. Matt Culp, Caleb Abramson, Caitlin Hillemeyer, Ian and Charity Rudder, Harold Thompson and all the folks at Smoky Mountain Angler, Chris Turner, Grant Summerlin, all y'all. Thanks for your Appalachian hospitality. You can find links to R&R Fly Fishing, Project Smoky Mountain Rebirth, and the Smoky Mountain Angler Fly Shop on our website, www.drakemag.com. Keegan Lynch designed our logo. Our title track is Ain't It Sweet by Phil Cook. Alrighty, time for this week's field notes. I reached out to Harold Thompson at Smoky Mountain Angler the other day to see how the fishing has been in the Smokies lately. Fishing has been really good. We're catching fish all over the park. Uh, yellow salads and stimulators and stuff of that type on top of the water have been doing excellent. And uh, just standard nymphs. Pheasant tail probably catches more fish than everything else put together. In the streams, uh, after they get three to five miles away from the mountains, we got smallmouth and streamers are working well enough on that. Uh, we, we were concerned that maybe that, uh, the ash in the water might affect the fish or something. The best we can tell is it's not hindering them in any at all. It's fishing really good, and uh, as well as it's done any time in recent years, so it had no adverse effect on the water. I don't know of anything else. Just give us a plug, because we need to get more people here. <laughs> Thanks, Harold. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been the Drake Cast.